This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Radamic. Berto Will is your host. We are honored today to have Dr. David Dozier, who is the author of The California Killing Field. And, and inter- he's an internationally recognized expert and speaker on mass communication, public relations, and communication management. Uh, he is also a professor emeritus in the School of Journalism and Media Studies at San Diego State University. Dozier's author or co-author of over a hundred books, book chapters, articles, scholarly papers, and his works have been cited by other scholars over 4,000 times. Welcome aboard Politics and Right, David Dozer. How are you doing today? Very good. And you, sir? I am doing, I'm doing great. Today, we have an important topic to discuss, and I think it is right up your alley. Specifically, has the growth of fake news infected our political process, to which you say? Yes, it has. Now, is it yet fatal? Is it quasi-fatal? Where are we in the realms of what this kind of fake news can do to a society, to a government, to a system? I think that we're kind of at a crossroads. I think that under the uh, Trump administration, uh, fake news and uh, uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, uh, ran rampant and uh, it was coming right out of the White House. And so it's understandable that many people would feel confused uh, and uh, misinformed. Uh, and I think that when you look at the uh, insurrection at the Capitol building on January 6th and listen to what some of the people said, um, they were in a bubble. Uh, they had beliefs that were, uh, from my point of view, uh, detached from reality. Um, but those views were uh, reinforced by a lot of information that was being fed to them um, uh, by uh, the former president, um, by uh, right-wing media channels. And I think that um, what we need to do as a society is to come to grips with the notion that we may disagree with each other uh, in terms of what the facts mean and how we feel about them. But I think that we have to have some kind of foundation in reality where we all agree, yeah, it's a fact. Uh, Joe Biden did win the presidency, fact. Um, And so those things are uh, some of the challenges that I think we're facing. Now, um, earlier in, in listening to your the initial part of your answer, you said that a lot of the people on January 6th in your opinion, a lot of what they said was, you didn't say silly, but you said, you know, made no sense, was false. Um, Isn't it a a part of the issue as well for us to even give it plausibility that says, in my opinion, what they said was false? Aren't there certain things that are just black and white? What you're saying is simply wrong. And maybe a lot of folks on the progressive side, on the news side, on the other side, need to stop uh, maybe just saying, it's simply not so. 
Well, I think um, that's one of the things I've observed over the course of the uh, Trump administration was a, um, I'll call it a step up to the plate moment for a lot of uh, a lot of journalists because um, in the past, uh, politicians love the old style journalists and, and, and the derogatory definition of a journalist was a stenographer with amnesia. And so, <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, and so uh, if uh, uh, the president of the United States said something that was false, something that we knew was false, and let's face it, it started right after his inauguration when he said it was the largest uh, inauguration crowd ever. Well, you know, these things are factual. Um, and so you can check them out. You can look at aerial photos. You can look at uh, Barack Obama's initial inauguration. You can look at Donald Trump's. Count the pick people in the crowd. And so uh, in the past, what journalists would do is say, well, the president said this. So let's go find a Democrat that would say something different and then let the uh, listener um, or viewer or reader make up their own minds. Uh, I think that's that's the easy way out. I think the, the harder thing to do is when you know that something is factually incorrect, you need to call people on it and you need to identify that in uh, the uh, news that you provide uh, about that. Now, one of the beauties of uh, reading something online is that you can have a link that says uh, this was false, and then you provide the reader uh, the opportunity to look why you say that. What are the uh, sources that allow you as a journalist to say, no, that's not true? Well, let, let me, let me uh, push you a second here, uh, Dr. Dozier, because as I, you're a journalism professor. Uh, Correct. Uh, now, one of the things that's taught in journalism is exactly that. He said, she said. In other words, don't become a part of the story. And in fact, that is what Rand Paul used against uh, Stephanopoulos just this weekend when uh, Stephanopoulos said simply, you are incorrect. Don, I mean, uh, Joe Biden won the election. Uh, immediately, Rand Paul said, wait a minute, Stephanopoulos, you are making yourself a part of the story. You should, you should simply, in the old days, what journalists did is they did exactly what you said. And I agree with you. That is what I thought. I'm, not, I'm an engineer, not a journalist, uh, journalistic, journalism student. But what I did learn in moving, migrating into journalism is that was the way journalism was taught. You didn't become a part of the story. You got all the sides together. And then you, you hoped that the American population or whoever you're feeding the news to would be able to make that decision as to what is true and what's not. What I'm saying here is our population, I think for journalism to work in a population like that, you have to assume a fairly intelligent population. Am I right? Or is that, is that correct or not? Well, I think you're you're correct. I I wouldn't use the word intelligent so much as informed. Informed, yes, and, correct. Uh, and 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 what I would what I would add to that is that when we look at things like QAnon, for instance, um, uh, and some of the things that um, they claimed, you know, you got this cabal of Democrats that are uh, basically engaged in human trafficking and cannibalism and Satanism. Well, from where I sit, that that's like a bad acid trip. I mean, that doesn't have any, <laughs> I'm sorry, it doesn't have any foundation in reality. Right. But I was, but I was reading this weekend about uh, the Jonestown suicides. Um, you may, uh, you might be too young to remember that. In but Guyana, I think, yeah. 
15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Break free from the big three. Get unlimited with 5G included for $30 a month when you get four lines on Xfinity Mobile. Prices may vary and are subject to change. Reduce speeds at 20 gigabytes per line. Yeah, back in uh, 1978, uh, uh, 900 people committed suicide, uh, including 300 people under the age of 18. Uh, And it was the same problem with being inside a bubble, information bubble, where everything those people were hearing was coming from Jim's. Jones. And for a lot of people on the right, uh, when Trump would say outrageous things, um, they believed it. And they were getting lots of reinforcement from, a, um, shall we say, a compliant um, uh, conservative media. And so I think that what we're seeing is a shift away from that old standard of he said, she said, um, because that you know, that's enshrined in journalism education. But if you look at it historically, where that came from is from the wire services. They had to sell a commodity, news, to uh, Republican and Democratic left-wing, right-wing publications. And so the he said, she said was the safe way of selling a commodity. Um, but that's the easy way out, the hard way. I am for so journalists. glad you... I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm so glad. I just learned... What I love about doing these interviews is how much I learn, right? I didn't realize that that that's a good reason for having the he said, she said, right? Because again, you're selling a product that had to go to everybody and you couldn't, it's, it, it's not even that it's not an opinion. It's just that if you happen to tell the truth as it is, they may not particularly want those particular stories, Exactly. And um, I think the the challenge in in our society, uh, and it all goes back to the internet and social media, uh, we've always had issues of people living uh, in information bubbles where they believed things that the vast majority of other Americans didn't believe. And so that's nothing unique. But what social media allows is for this to be accelerated and for this to be automated and for this to be uh, uh, sent at the speed of light all around the country uh, where everybody's got a platform. Everybody can be a publisher, but there's not much accountability for it. And so what I think the solution to all of this is, is a thing that some of my colleagues here at San Diego State and other universities around the country are calling digital and social media literacy. Our, um, our population in the United States today is simply illiterate um, as regards information that they get off of the internet and especially social, especially social media. And there's a skill set, a uh, toolbox that uh, we can impart starting in uh, kindergarten uh, all the way through high school and certainly a general ed course at the uh, college or university level that would provide people with the tools that they need to be able to look at information that they receive and start asking questions about it. Where did that come from? Who says? What's the background? They're saying that the Constitution says this or the Constitution says that. 
look at the Constitution. It's available online. So the same internet that allowed social media to create these bubbles is also a powerful tool for you know, popping those bubbles and allowing um, the average citizen uh, to be their own best defense, uh, their own, if you will, firewall against uh, disinformation and fake news. Now, personally, um, I like to be corrected. I imagine you as a professor of journalism as well, like, like, like that. But um, in other words, if I find something on the internet and I do my research and I initially came out okay, and then later on I found out that there are some caveats, I, I put the errata on it and I make the change as necessary, etc. But isn't it true that in this country and likely everywhere else, there is a certain amount of desired willful ignorance by parties to justify their own sometime prejudices, sometimes ideologies. And what, they, what, what this allows them to do is hide behind the misinformation that the social media allows them? I think uh, every human being has a tendency towards what's called confirmation bias. Um, right. We all like to feel that we've got it right. And when somebody disagrees with us, they've got it wrong. And so um, the most insidious misinformation is the misinformation that kind of fits our worldview. And so that's where we've got to be especially careful are these taken for granted facts, if you will, uh, that may in fact, uh, may in fact not be true. And so that's where we've got to uh, another aspect of uh, uh, digital and social media literacy is looking at different points of view. Now, uh, given my uh, background, uh, I, I, I attended the University of California at Berkeley in the late 60s. I know, uh, so, I know your style. <laughs> so, so I, I have a point of view that's uh, in streets of Berkeley sort of point of view. Um, but I understand that a lot of people that I grew up with in a very rural part of California would disagree with me. So um, I have to expose myself to points of view that I'm not necessarily in agreement with. So I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I read the columns um, as far down into the column as I can get before I go, nah, can't read anymore. But, but I, I expose myself to points of view uh, that I disagree with. And, and uh, I think that's an obligation for all of us. Um, uh, I, I like to use the example of uh, imagine that you're a citizen in North Korea. And so everything you get in the media is basically state controlled and uh, you can vote for the Communist Party or the Communist Party. So you really don't have a lot of obligations in terms of digital and social media literacy, uh, but we live in a democracy. We've got all this power uh, that we can exercise uh, at, the, uh, at the voting booth. And as a consequence, um, it's a, a part of our responsibility as citizens in a democracy to become literate uh, in uh, the information that we're consuming, and especially the information that we already agree with. Um, that's the challenge. Um, but nobody said that being a citizen in a democracy was going to be easy. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that the, the 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 last four years, and more specifically, the this month has taught us a lesson in how how really important it is for us to be in formed in a uh, in a rational way about what's going on in our country, what's going on in the world, uh, and um, to have 
civil dialogue with people with whom we disagree. That is what I really push. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a very progressive, but I try to entertain all sides. In fact, uh, this program you'll find have a whole lot of conservatives, liberals, everything in between that uh, listens to this program, watches this program. But I, I want to go back to the same subject again, because I think it's a bit uh, deeper in that everything that you said, I agree with. We have to teach uh, digital literacy from kindergarten up so people can understand that everything that they click on isn't true. I agree with that. Um, but I think when we talk about when we talk about confirmation bias uh, with people trying to find information that match matches their ideology, uh, there's I think there's yet another level, and that is people find digital data to match their ideology uh, when they are sure that when they are disproved, uh, they still maintain the same. Uh, you know, and, and still continue to use that digital data as their their backups in as much as they may be proven false. There is another tier, I think, that, and I don't know how we handle that. I don't know how we handle that. That uh, when, And that's where I talk about willful ignorance. Right. From confirmation I, bias to willful ignorance. How I do we handle that? that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that we're going to, you know, make everybody... Um, uh, shall we say, uh, sophisticated, literate folks on the internet. And um, there will always be folks that have a strongly held point of view and uh, don't, um, don't want to change. Uh, my my, my brother-in-law used to live uh, here in California, moved to South Carolina because he just couldn't stand living in a blue state anymore. Uh, though South Carolina is going, uh, going purple anyway. It's going so. blue too, yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, I think that that my brother-in-law would be an example of somebody that had a strong point of view that just wasn't willing to um, uh, listen to other points of view. But I, I found him useful to talk to because um, during the Trump years, uh, he was very much a pro-Trump person. And so I'd start the conversation with, well, why do you think that's true? And you try to find, um, you try to find areas where you agree. Uh, one of my students um, uh, was an officer, uh, may still be uh, in the Marine Corps, and he uh, uh, was in my office uh, talking about, uh, this is back in 2016, he was talking about uh, voting for President Trump. And, uh, but he was from a rural part of Georgia, I believe, and I grew up in a rural area. And so we started talking about rural poverty and how rural poverty is different than urban poverty and how solutions to those problems have to take in to consideration those very special uh, characteristics. Sure. Well, we, we, we strongly disagreed on who ought to be the next president of the United States, um, but we could find areas where we agreed and I think that a lot of times when you're dealing with, if you will, uh, willful ignorance, you try to find an area where you have some common ground and you try to expand. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
Make summer memories in Hampton. Visit the Virginia Air and Space Science Center. Discover 400 years of history at Fort Monroe and explore our wide open beaches. Purchase your Sea to Stars ticket and plan your trip today at visithampton.com. Uh, expand from there. And I think the key thing isn't so much that you're necessarily going to uh, convert somebody to um, a, uh, a more right. enlightened point of view, uh, but you're going to have a dialogue. And when they start thinking about those people, they'll go, well, but, but, but there's this guy I was talking to and he's a liberal, but you know, he was one of my teachers and yada, yada. And that's, that's my stance. You know, I was talking to this guy, he voted for, for uh, Donald Trump, um, uh, career, career military guy. But we have things that we agree on. And uh, one of the things that um, he pointed out, he says, a lot of people say that I'm a, because I voted for Trump, I'm a racist. Well, his wife is from the Philippines. His children are biracial. And he says, I take exception to that um, because uh, my family is biracial. And so um, I'm not a racist. My reason for voting for Trump had nothing to do with his uh, um overt racism, if you will, uh, it was because of other things. And so when people would say, well, if you voted for Trump, you're a racist. I always remember um, my Marine Corps student who basically uh, got me out of my comfort zone, uh, got me out of an area where I was very comfortable with saying, oh, well, if you voted for Donald, you must be a racist. Well, indeed, many people had voted for Donald Trump uh, are and were racist. Um, but not everybody. And I think having those exceptions um, allows all of us to realize that as Americans, while we have these deep, deep differences, um, we also have a lot of things in common. That is so true. And I, I you know, having, having a relatives of mine, both black and white that have voted for uh, Donald Trump, uh, I, I've, I've learned that lesson, of course, because neither of them have or 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 racist per se neither the black one or the white ones racist so i mean um that that i think that is that's an important thing and it's it's hard in the in this during the steam to really get that out but anyhow um before we go here you you know what got this journalist this professor into writing a book called the california killing field well, that's, um, I'll try to make it a very short story. When I was 15 years old, I was next door neighbor and friends with a kid that got on the school bus with me. And because it was up in the mountains and it was cold in the winter, his grandfather would come and join us at the bus stop. And I'd sit in the cab uh, with this uh, student, same age as me. And his grandfather, the granddad really well. Uh, well, the summer between our freshman and sophomore year, uh, uh, this individual, this uh, friend of mine, murdered his grandmother and his grandfather. Years later, when he was let out of prison, he went on to kill eight other people. His name is Ed Kemper uh, and kind of a famous serial killer out here in California now uh, serving time, uh, you know, multiple life sentences. Uh, and it got me at a very early age thinking about the death penalty. So to answer your question, I've always been interested in the death penalty. I happen to be an abolitionist. I don't think the death penalty is morally uh, um, correct. And um, I also, through my own research, know it's a very racist institution. About 13% of Americans are, are African-American or Black. 34% uh, of the people executed are Black. So it's uh, probably one of the most racist institutions in our society. And um, so I decided to write a novel because these are things that 
you know, people don't really care a lot about. And so I tried to write a novel um, that involved an investigative journalist doing some digging around and trying to introduce those issues in the context of uh, storytelling. So anyhow, that's, um, that's the, the backstory on the California killing field. Well, available on Amazon. Yeah, I, I saw it. I, I saw the book, you know, as I was going through your stuff here, I said, oh, let me bring up this stuff because that book's look at, book looks like it's going to be an interesting read. But anyhow, um, the question that I ask every single person that I interview, and that is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Oh, you did an excellent job of asking all of the right questions. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your program and, and answer those questions. Well, look, uh, Dr. Dozier, I really appreciate your, uh, you having been here on Politics Done Right. Uh, thank you so kindly, and you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too, sir. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money. Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.